Good morning, church family. How's everybody doing today? Thank you, Tim, for using your gift. Uh, and I did listen to the words. Powerful, my friend. Powerful. Um, I just want to invite you to turn in your Bibles um, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, that is um, actually page 1075 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 17. And we're going to begin reading uh, in verse 22 and all the way to the end of the chapter. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they, they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this encounter that Paul had over 2,000 years ago uh, in the city of Athens, in the Areopagus. Lord, he was on mission for you. And we, Ashley River Baptist Church, want to have that same zeal to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone in our lives. We pray that you will encourage us with this passage and also kind of equip us to go and share the good news that we enjoy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, as I, um, I don't know how many of you know my story. Uh, some of you do, but I was not raised in the church. I was not raised uh, going to Sunday school or going to big church. Uh, we went a couple of times, but then we stopped going for whatever reason. I don't know. My parents did not give it. Um, but I went through high school, and believe it or not, I was given the book of Job uh, to read in ninth grade English. 
<laughs> and as I read the book of Job, I was fascinated by it. Uh, such an amazing story of perseverance and asking the big questions about why bad things happen to apparently good people. And so I was, uh, I would say that the seed was planted during that moment, but then there was somebody in my life in 11th grade who literally invited me to a Young Life meeting. A Young Life meeting is a Christian parachurch organization for high schoolers. And the people who actually meet and lead those groups are college students who are Christians. And so I was invited by Linda Gotcher. Linda Gotcher said, Randy, why don't you come to Young Life uh, with me? And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And she said, you'll find out, you know, you'll find out. And so I went. And um, all these years later, I was able to see Linda at a, at a reunion uh, 25 years later and explain to her that her inviting me to Young Life has not only, I gave my life to Jesus Christ at a Young Life camp that following summer, but here I am preaching God's word every single Sunday because Linda Gotcher said, come with me and let me introduce you to a man named Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And so she had a heart for invitation. Well, I wanted to be like Linda and I wanted to uh, go as I was going through the, the chemotherapy um, I would go to the Roper St. Francis Cancer Center right there on Tecklenburg. And um, Susan and I, Susan would go with me every single week. And um, we'd go in there. And I have to tell you that there are people who work in that cancer center who are a light to the patients that come. A lot of patients are uh, very depressed, very discouraged. They're struggling. And these people, these nurses, these nurse practitioners really show them the love that only Jesus can give. And so guess what? A few of them are here today, right there on that row. What? All, what? How many, eight of you are there on that middle row? Raise your hand. They all came. Um, and, and, and I'm grateful. This is an emotional day for me because I know tomorrow's a big day. But you know what? God's in control. God's in control. And so investing and inviting in the lives of others is what we're all about today. And so I want us to see in this passage that Paul literally shows us two imperatives for God's mission. The first is to invest in the lives of others. I want uh, us to see here, turn back with me if you will to chapter 17, all the way back at verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Paul went to Athens. He was intentional. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? You have to be intentional. Paul went on mission. This is his second missionary journey when he comes into Athens. He has left behind Timothy and Silas in Berea, but Paul was threatened, and so he went ahead and went to Athens, and as he's waiting for them, Paul was not only intentional, but he was observant. He was observant. He looked around the city, and he saw all of the idols. Now, the Greek word for full of idols literally means that you couldn't look anywhere and not see them. 
This was a very pagan culture that Paul had just walked into. I don't think it's any different than the culture we live in today. There are idols all around. And Paul was observant and we need to be observant. And you say, well, there's no, these people had, you know, altars built and they had statues, wooden statues. They had golden calves. Those were their idols. But we first have to ask ourselves the question, what is idolatry? What is it? What is an idol? An idol is any one or anything that becomes more important to you than God. That is an idol. That's what an idol is. It is anything or anyone who becomes more important to you than God. Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, he said, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. And you shall not bow down to them or worship them. So God laid out his first and second commandments. And he said, you shall have no other gods before me. And you might say, well, wait a minute. I really don't have any idols in my life. Well, let me challenge that just for a moment. There's a good chance that you brought a potential idol in your life with you to the worship service this morning. It's called this, our cell phone. Now, if you don't think this is an idol for you, then maybe what we ought to do is just ask ourselves the question, how many of you, let me, let's do an exercise. Everybody pull out your phone. And if somebody raises their hand and says, I left mine at home, I'm going to come up and ask you to preach. Okay. (laughs) But pull out your phone and then go to settings. Okay. And if you go to settings, Then you look down and you can see a thing called screen time. You ever seen that? Screen time? So far today, I've had one hour and 22 minutes of screen time. It's 10.45 in the morning. Now, here's the key. Tonight, go home and look at your phone and check out the amount of screen time that you did this afternoon. Or today, okay? It'll give you the total for the day. And then you can go back into your history and look at how many hours, because I guarantee you it's hours that you have spent on your phone. Now, I'm not saying that a phone is bad in and of itself. It's very good. It's helpful. It's a tool. But if it takes more of your time and more of your thinking than God, then it could become an idol for you. Others, uh, your idol may be money, money or, or material things. And the Bible's very clear that you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said that. Paul would later tell Timothy, he would say, the love of money, not money itself, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Because why? Because it will displace God in your life. It can become an idol. What about influence or your job status or position or fame? Do you realize how many people in our world today have their own YouTube channel? They are trying to create influence. The idea is that you can become an influencer. Some people who are very successful at this make a lot of money being paid by companies that advertise on these social media sites. 
And if you become a real big influencer, then you can make a lot of money. And there are people, listen, we all do it, right? We watch the Kardashians are the classic case. We want to watch their lives. We want to peer into their lives. And as if some of the elderly people in our room would say, oh, this younger generation, you know what? It's just nothing more than a more current version of soap operas during the day. That's all it is. It's like days of our lives or all my children or general hospital. All we're doing is we're sitting back and letting other people live their lives or at least pretend to live their lives in front of us. And somehow or another, none of us says, time out, maybe I ought to start living. Maybe I ought to start going out and making a life for myself and living for God. A a fourth idol that comes into our lives sometimes is physical appearance. We are obsessed as a society about the amount of time we spend in the gym or at the fitness center. We are obsessed with the diets, the latest trends in diets that we have. All of us are always reading up on how I can look better or take care of myself. Now, again, again, is that bad? No, it's great. You should take, you should shower. You should shampoo your hair. You should, please, brush your teeth. Please brush your teeth. And if somebody offers you a mint, take it. They're telling you something, okay? But, but if it becomes all that you are obsessed about, then it becomes potentially an idol. So the point is made, right? We look around us. We don't see wooden statues and golden calves, but we do have idols in our lives. And we have to be careful. The folks that we're trying to reach, just like Paul, that's all they have for this life because they don't have God. And who builds that bridge? We do. We build the bridge from them worshiping the idols that they have available to them. And if you look around Charleston, there's lots of people who are hanging their life on idols. And here we are. We have the greatest news ever given. Why would we bottle it up? Keep it for ourselves. Why not let it pour out? And that was Paul's heart. Look at what it says there in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, the agora. The Greek word there for marketplace is agora. And he would go and he would reason with people in the marketplace. He would go and meet them. I was in a Sunday school class this morning. God's amazing. God's amazing. I, I literally walked into church today. You know, I always visit a Sunday school class, right? And I was like, which one am I going to go to today? And I said, I'm going to go to Scott Ryan's Sunday school class. So I'm sitting in Scott Ryan's Sunday school class and they're taking prayer requests. And then one of the ladies in the class, Lynn Braun, says, I've got a praise. I was able to go. Uh, Jeff and I were out shopping. And um, I was walking out of the store. And I saw this lady there. And something in my heart told me to just approach this lady. Just to give a good word to her. And, and Lynn went up to that person and said, um, do you have a church home? And the lady said, no, I do not. And and let me just tell you, I've been in Charleston for quite a while. Nobody has ever invited me to church. I'm coming. I'm going to come visit your church. You see, that's all it takes is to invest 
in the lives of others. Stop. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you and let you move in that direction. You have to ask yourself the question, how much of God is in you that it just spills out into the world around you? You see, in verse 18, you have these philosophy philosophies that are introduced to the text. It says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans, this is what they believe. They believe that you are to do what feels good. Don't take anything that's painful. Don't accept anything in your life that's going to take a lot of work or pain. Just do what feels good. Sound familiar to our culture? This is what it's about. People, younger generation, this is one of the biggest challenges that the younger generation faces. They haven't gone through difficulty in their life. And learning how to go through difficulty is part of life itself. Adulting, as they say. And the point is, is that we understand that Jesus promised us, this is what he told his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, and that's what Jesus' message is to us and it is to the culture around us. And then there's the Stoics. The Stoics are the opposite end of the spectrum. They are the ones who said, we're going to endure whatever pain, whatever tribulation comes into our lives, and we're not going to show our feelings to the outside world. We're just going to sit in it. (laughs) We're just going to deal with it. And so Paul was telling them, neither one of you is correct. You are to live within the culture you are and you are to show the love of Jesus Christ with them. And look at what it says there in verse, um, the end of verse 18. It says, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. You see, Paul knew how to turn a secular conversation to a spiritual one. And that is what the common ground is that we all want to generate as we speak with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, etc. He established spiritual common ground. And that's where we picked up our our reading this morning. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You understand? He immediately went right to the spiritual. He transitioned from having a discussion in the marketplace to now having an audience and people listening to him. And he says, I can see that you are spiritual. And then he says, this unknown God that you have erected an altar to, let me share with you that he is knowable. Our God, God the creator and sustainer of the universe is knowable. He is. He's knowable, friends. He wants to know you so intimately and you can know Him as you come to Him. That's why we sang that song. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He knows what you're going to have for lunch before you order this afternoon. He knows. And so because He knows the future, you can trust in Him. So I've had so many people ask me, well, Pastor, how do I have a spiritual conversation. Well, here's a, here's a good one. When you go out to the restaurant this afternoon, just, I mean, I would assume you're going to pray over your meal. Why don't you just ask your server, hey, is there a way that we can pray for you? We're going to pray for our meal. Can we pray for you? Very simple. Now, it doesn't change anything in that person's life other than you just planted a seed. You've planted a seed. 
And maybe later on they'll go home and they'll think about that and they'll say, you know, I'm so happy that somebody felt like they cared enough to ask me how they can pray for me. That's a powerful thing. Uh, let me give you another example. Um, when people ask you, when you go back to work on Monday, they ask you, how was your weekend? How about bring up our church service? Say our pastor talked about investing, inviting in the, in the lives of others this weekend. All of a sudden, you're letting them know you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, and they have an opportunity. Now, whenever there's a crisis that comes into their life, and they're at the end of their rope, and none of the other idols in their lives will suit who do they come to? They'll come to you. Because they, they recognize there's hope that your God provides. Does that make sense? And so there you can do that. And then, you know, we talk about sports. Man, you all know me. I love sports. I played them all when I was coming up. You know, I was great. Uh, I love sports. And so bob, bottom line is, is that when people talk about that's what guys talk about, right? We talk about sports. But how do you turn that around into a spiritual conversation? Hey, are there going to be sports in heaven? Man, I hope so. I hope there's kickball in heaven so that Dylan can get a win. Okay? All right. So, anyway, that's a, that's a, a side joke. He's going to hit me up two, two weeks from now when he's preaching. So I know I got to get him out right, right now. But then, of, of course, he, he, you know, sports, you just opened up a door. How about the weather? Maybe ask this question. Is God responsible for sending all of these natural disasters to our world? Or does he merely allow them to happen to teach us something about our own frailty and our need for him? You see, that's opening up a spiritual conversation. You get the idea. But here's the key. You've got to be intentional. You have to be observant. You have to be able to introduce these things. And then lastly, here we have to invite. Okay, invest and invite. And this is where Paul really gets into the, the nuts and bolts of the gospel. In verse 24, it says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is the creator. Genesis 1.1, it doesn't even equivocate. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth, and he also created you and I. He, he formed you and created you in his image. That's how much love he has for you. He is the creator. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning, and nothing has been made that has not been made by him. God himself is the creator of all. Now this would fly in the face of Greek and Roman population in Paul's day, because they were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. And here comes Paul saying, no, there's one God and he is the creator of everything. He created everything and he is in fact ruler over all. Because he then goes on to say, listen to this in verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You see, God created the world to show his display of his power and his creative nature. You look out at the world, if you truly take a moment and just step back and just see our universe 
the more powerful the telescopes become, the more awesome the universe becomes to those who see it. God is creator of all. He created you. He created me. He created everything. And he sustains us. Our breath. He sustains you. Every, t- every time you breathe, thank God. Thank God. Thank God that he has given me a heart that beats without my having to remind myself, heart beat. You understand? That's an involuntary kind of medical, amazing thing about God's creative power. He, your heart is beating. Your lungs are breathing. And your mind is active and thinking. These are all things that God gives to each and every one of us. Don't you want to invite people into that type of God's relationship? And then verse 30, it says this, humans are sinful and need in repentance. Look at what verse 30 says. God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn from our sinful way and turn to a righteous and holy God. It means you're headed this way, and now God wants you to turn around and go run to him. Run to the one who has already paid the price for your sin. Paul says God is the creator of all and now he is the savior of all. All humankind has the ability to come to Jesus Christ. What does it require? You and me investing in the lives of others and inviting them into a relationship with the savior. And then uh, thirdly, look at what it says there in verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. The man he appointed here is Jesus Christ. Jesus said God has given all judgment to the Son of Man, which is his own self-identification. And so Jesus is the judge. And there will come a day of judgment. We need to understand that. Many people go about their day just like they did in the days of Noah thinking that everything's just going to continue on. But there is going to come a day of judgment, and it is by Jesus Christ. This judgment is based on the works that you do. And if the works that you do are in the flesh, that there is no Savior in your life, then guess what? Those works will never amount to enough to be righteous in God's sight. Our job is to help people understand that the judge is going to judge, and the only advocate we have is Jesus. He is our advocate. He is the one who stands in our place. And then finally, look at what it says here. He, in verse, the end of the, verse 31, he has given proof of all of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You realize this is really the linchpin of Christianity. God raised the Son. He is the first fruit of the resurrection. And because he lives, all of those who are in Christ, who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, they too will be raised. You know, my body is broken. I have this thing called cancer. This, this thing is a disease. It's a physical disease. 
But every single human being on the face of this planet ever born is facing another disease that they can't cure. It's called sin. And when you have sin in your life, there is only one remedy. That remedy is Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Amen? Hallelujah. What a Savior. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says this, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And so we have Jesus as the answer. And so our job today is to be like Linda Gotcher, hold out the invitation to come follow Jesus. Can you do that? Well, there's people who are going to say to me, well, I don't know how to do this, Randy. I don't know how. Let me give you some responses that people might ask you when you're talking to them about Christianity. Number one, people may say there are errors in the Bible. You ever heard that one? There are errors in the Bible. Uh, Gently ask them, can you show me where there's an error in the Bible and we can talk about it. Chances are they can't point it out themselves. They've just parroted what they've heard in school or somewhere else. There are no errors in the Bible. The apparent contradictions are our lack of understanding, you see. And so that's one way to handle that. Can you please show me? And when they do, there's a good book out called um, When Critics Ask by Geisler. And he goes through every single passage of scripture that has been brought up by skeptics. And he answers those questions that come. Number two, I'm a good person. I'm a good person, so I'm going to go to heaven. Well, the question then you have to ask is, good compared to what? Good compared to what? I mean, if you're comparing yourself to other people, maybe you are, but not to God's standard. And then you go through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever lusted in your heart? Well, then you've just lied and you've stolen and you've lusted in your heart. You've just sinned. Sin separates. The Bible says that God is holy. He cannot, he cannot dwell with sin. And so therefore, you need a Savior. Number three, God wouldn't uh, send people to hell. Have you ever heard that one before? God wouldn't send, a good God wouldn't send people to hell. You're right. He doesn't send them to hell. They choose it. They choose it. They choose to do it by refusing the son that God freely gave. You see, refusal. People don't go into an eternal life without God because of their sin. They go into an eternal life without God because they've rejected the Savior. And when you reject the Savior, then you are rejecting God's only solution for your sin. Uh, How about this one? Number four, Jesus is the only way or isn't the only way. You know, Jesus is just one way to the Father or to heaven. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except by me. Well, if that's true, then we have to deal with that, don't we? You know what I tell people? Jesus either is who he said he was or he isn't. He either is God in the flesh, loving a hurting world, or he isn't. That's it. He doesn't give you middle, middle ground. He either is 
All that he said he was. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. If that is the case, then He demands that you make a decision about Him. The world wants to just not make that decision. Wants to kick the can down the road. But none of us is guaranteed a day past today. And so therefore, we must be on mission for God. We must invest and invite. And so we see here the three responses. Some will sneer, some will want more information, and some will come into the faith. Praise God and hallelujah. Our job is to plant seeds. Plant seeds. Be waterers of the seed that you plant. And God will do the rest. You see, our job is to invest and invite in the lives of other people. So here's my challenge for us, church family. Go home today and make a list of people you know are far from God. If it's a hard list for you to make, then you need to expand your network. Jesus had dinner with sinners. Jesus loved people who were not like him. If you want to be like Jesus, you need to love people who are not like you. Charleston is full of people who are lost, who've never been invited to church. Won't you invite them? Won't you have a conversation with them just to plant the seed and let God do the work? This is our challenge as a church family, to love people the way Jesus loves them. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's heart. He was distressed when he saw all the people worshiping idols. Lord, I pray for the city of Charleston. I pray that you will use us, Ashley River, to show people that there's a better way. And that way is Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Please stand.